I can name that movie with a quote of 14 words. Good morning, Generations Church. I am looking forward to this new message from our new series on the book of Mark. And I am delighted that we are here with a very different background than we are accustomed to. Again, we are on our second message from the Gospel of Mark. And I wanted to play a game, but because we're not live, I guess you won't be able to answer. But I want to see if you can guess a movie. I have a quote that is five words long, and I'm curious how many of you, when you hear the quote, can guess the movie. The quote is, My Wesley will save me. How many of you can identify that that quote is from The Princess Bride. That is, of course, one of my all-time favorite movies. And it's a wonderful movie because it's about a hero. It's about a knight in shining armor, somebody who can swoop in and rescue people. But do we really believe that it is possible? I had a speech class that I took in high school and I remember a lot of stories from that class. I remember the professor, the teacher, Mrs. Crowley, and she was an older lady and very stern and very serious looking. And I recall I had to give a speech and for some reason, I don't remember why, but I missed the class period when I was supposed to give my speech. And so I had to give it Outside of class, I had to go after school and give the speech to Mrs. Crowley directly. And I remember her sour face as she just stared up at me with her stern look and listened. And I thought it was a great speech and I thought it had a lot of funny things. And what the speech was about is don't believe everything you hear. And I gave several examples of advertisements for things that you should never have believed. And when you find out what it really is, is, you realize you were duped. So for instance, I had seen an advertisement. This one actually had tricked me. It was an advertisement for walkie-talkies, and it said that you could talk to your friends anywhere from room to room, and you could speak to them. And so I sent away for this thing, these walkie-talkie system, and what came to me was basically just two cans connected by a string. And so if you're five or eight feet apart from your friend, you can whisper into the can and your buddy can hear it. So I guess it worked. But my favorite, all-time favorite, and this was, I was reminded of this last week in our church time together when we meet on Zoom after church. Let me encourage people who aren't going. We have a lot of fun with that. But last time, somehow, we got into a discussion of uh fly swatters and fly zappers, electric zappers and those things. And that reminded me of this example that I used in that speech in high school, talking to Mrs. Crowley as I was telling funny stories and her stern face staring back at me. I saw an advertisement. It was guaranteed to kill flies. And then when you got the instructions, what the instructions said is that you take well, what you receive in the mail, it's promised to guarantee to kill flies. And what you receive in the mail is two blocks of wood, tall, small pieces of two by fours. And it says what you do is you hold the one piece of wood in one hand, you put the fly 
on the piece of wood, you take the other piece of wood and smack, and it's guaranteed to kill the fly. Can you believe all the things that you are told? I think from an early age, we are reminded that we should be cynical, that we should be skeptical. But what we are doing now is we're looking at the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. And Mark, like so many people throughout history, is going to be introducing a Messiah. He's going to be introducing a Savior. And the question we have to ask this morning is, why should we believe that message? What is different about the message of Mark, the message of the Gospels in the Bible, and every other promise of a Messiah or every other promise that we have learned has been disappointing to us. We want to read our passage this morning. And what I want you to note as we turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, is how Mark begins writing. Does he start his story with a genealogy? Does he start his story with the, uh, with the story of the birth of Jesus, how Mary was a virgin and she was with child and her husband or her betrothed Joseph had this miraculous baby? Or does, she, does Mark start with a Christology that shows the greatness of who Jesus is in the very first word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That's how John begins his gospel. Of course, it's Matthew that starts with a genealogy, tracing who is the Christ, how he comes from the proper genealogy, comes from the proper family that was prophesied. And it was Luke who starts with the wonderful, miraculous Christmas story of the birth of Christ. But that's not of interest to Mark. Mark wants to get into the action. He wants to go, go, go. And that's what we're going to see as we continue through this series. So let us go ahead and read um, the book. Read from the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me, comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our head in prayer. Lord, we ask you to meet with us 
this morning and speak to us through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. What we want to do today is we want to look at this passage and we want to see that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior. And he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And then there is a formal announcement. That's what happens in these first eight verses. So we start with verse 1. And here we have again in the beginning. And if you recall what we said last time, this is the beginning, not just of the book, but the entire book of Mark is the beginning of the story of the Messiah, a story that continues until today. But then the beginning of the, and I want us to look at three key words. The first key word will be good news. The next key word will be Jesus, the Messiah. And then the third key word is the Son of God. The good news. How would the Romans? We said that it is the Romans who were the audience for this gospel. When the Romans heard good news, gospel, they obviously wouldn't immediately think, oh, it's Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection from the dead for the sin of the world. When they heard that, um, maybe we could translate it glad tidings if we think of how the Romans would have heard it in their day. And so when would they use that word glad tidings or gospel or good news? And it would be maybe at the birth of a king or the ascension of the king to his throne. Then there would be glad tidings announced or at the end of a war. Imagine uh, the scene. Remember the scene, the pictures at the end of World War II as everyone celebrated that would be the glad tidings at the cessation at the end of a war. And here, this is glad tidings. This is good news. This is gospel. Why? Because Mark is introducing a Messiah, a Savior, a King. Who is this good news about? The good news is about Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is his name. And of course, Christ or the Messiah is his title. He is the anointed one. He is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And then notice this. He isn't just the Messiah, but the Messiah is himself the Son of God. He is God himself. I want us to consider that this announcement that we're discussing today is very unique. There have been many people who have come to save. There have been many glad tidings, but kings and warriors, they come and go. Movements, they come and go. But Everything seems to remain the same. A lot of you know that I am a student of uh, modern Chinese history. I have a PhD in modern Chinese history. And one of the most striking periods of modern Chinese history is the Cultural Revolution, the great cultural, the great proletarian cultural revolution. And what that was, it was a vision to bring a new, righteous society, 
to the world. They were going to get rid of the four olds, the old ideas, the old culture, the old traditions. They were going to get rid of all that, destroy all of that, and usher in a new world. And they were going to do that by their fidelity to their leader, Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao. And Red guards in the high schools and in the universities, they begin to gather into these red guard units. And immediately, this utopian vision began to fall apart. These red guard units, it turned out, were divided against themselves. For instance, there were red guards who were the children of the intellectuals. These are intellectuals who had been the elite in the old society before 1949. And when they became red guards, this was their opportunity to reestablish their prime identity in Chinese society. Then there's another group of people. These are the people who were the children of the revolutionaries. These are the people who were on the outside of society. But in 1949, at the Chinese Revolution, they were brought into the center of society, brought into power, and they also pledged their allegiance to Mao. And then there were people who were outside the society before 1949 and outside the society after 1949, and they pledged their allegiance to Chairman Mao. And these groups tried to outred each other, tried to outzeal each other. They tried to show that they were the true children of Chairman Mao. And it turned into violence, it turned into a mess. I met in the 1990s, I met a Red Guard. He was at a prestigious university in Shanghai when he was a college student. And he told some amazing, um, chilling stories about what happened. He talked about the two major factions that had grown up on his university in Shanghai. And it turned out he ended up as the leader of one of the factions. And he talked about how they hated the other faction and the other faction actually at one point kidnapped him hauled him off into the countryside. He was a college student, maybe 18, 20 years old. They hauled him off into the countryside, tied him up in a little tiny house on a farm where he was able to get out of his ropes. He was able to climb out through a window and he was able to somehow find his way back into Shanghai. And when he, he describes when he arrived back, he describes that his group, his faction of Red Guards were delighted to see their leader had escaped from the captivity of the other group of Red Guards students. And when he got back, they gathered all the students together and he says he remembered he was at the uh, school uh, at a, on a building, a second floor, and the second floor had an outdoor uh, porch and he walked out on the porch and he walked out to the edge of the porch and underneath were hundreds of his classmates, hundreds of Red Guard students. And he said they all cheered when he walked out and he said he waved at them. He said he felt like Mao Zedong himself as he addressed the, the crowd. 25 or 30 years after that, he laughed. He laughed at himself. He had learned to be cynical about those events because what he realized, it didn't matter which Red Guard group you were in. It didn't matter how red you were. It didn't matter how much you were able to 
get rid of the past, how much you were able to destroy of the relics or the traditions, people were still the same. And 25 years later, he recognized that and he just laughed at himself. Why should we believe Mark? I want to suggest when Mark comes with a gospel, with glad tidings, it is different because this time he is talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the one who was promised in the Old Testament. And he's talking about the Son of God. He's talking about God himself. And that makes all the difference in the world. Mark begins to put together the evidence we look here at Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and here we see a quotation from the Old Testament. It's fascinating. Mark does not quote the Old Testament anywhere in his entire book except right here. Um, Jesus uh, sometimes quotes the Old Testament in the book of Mark, but it's from the lips of Jesus. Here is Mark himself quoting the Old Testament. And what's fascinating is what is the prophecy that Mark references when he quotes the Old Testament. The reference is not a prophecy of Jesus, but it's a prophecy of John the Baptist. Watch. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This person is John the Baptist. He is the one who is to come and declare that the Messiah has arrived. The quotations, it's worth noting, are from in verse 2, it's from Exodus and from Malachi. And then in verse 3, it's actually from Isaiah. This is how the New Testament writers quote the prophecies. They often put together two or three or several quotes and then just make a single reference to the main point of the quotation. So here that is Isaiah and he's pointing to the prophet John. And John is going to announce that this unique moment in history has arrived, that God himself has come in flesh as the promised one of Israel. And his name is Jesus, and he is the Messiah. Now, in the Roman world, what the people would expect with a new king or a new ruler or a new lord is they would expect an announcement. No king would just stand up themselves and say, I announce myself as the king, as the Caesar of Rome. No, there would be somebody who would herald them. There would be a formal announcement that now is the time, that now the king has come. And so that is how Mark structures his gospel. So he introduces that John the Baptist was prophesied in the Jewish scriptures, and now he goes on and shows what John 
has to say. And so John appeared, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so we see John, he steps onto the stage of human history and he calls on the people to repent and to be baptized. For the Jewish people, it was only the Gentiles, if they converted, and that was a very small group of people, but if a Gentile converted to Judaism, then they would need to be baptized. And so what we see here is the amazing picture of these Jewish people recognizing the power of John the Baptist. And so when he preached, they responded and they went out to him into the wilderness where they agreed to repent for their sins and to be baptized by him. And it seems their confession is that, yes, even we, the Jewish people, recognize that like the Gentiles, we need some sort of baptism. We need a sign that we are forgiven. And so they received the baptism of John. And then we go on to verse 6, and it says what? What actually, what do we know about John? In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually we know quite a bit about John the Baptist. We know about his miraculous birth. He was born to Elizabeth in a miracle. We know about, um, he's a cousin, he's a relative of Jesus himself. We know several facts. He's the greatest among men, but none of those are of interest to Mark. What does Mark want to tell us about John the Baptist? He appeared in history, and then he describes what he wore. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. So what's going on here? I think we want to see the power of the symbolism. His readers would have understood this reference to clothing made of camel's hair. A modern equivalent might be like this. If you talk about being dressed in this way in a hat, this kind of uh, animal skin hat. You think of Daniel Boone. You think of the old western frontier. Or if you think about a stovetop hat and the beard, you think of Abraham Lincoln and you think of the Civil War. So the reference to the clothing can, can draw an allusion to an era or to a type of person. And so John, wearing clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, what does that remind people of? It reminds people of a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And that might explain why the people rushed out to him. For several hundred years, there had not been a prophet in Israel. And now there was this new prophet, John the Baptist. And the people went out to the Jordan River to receive his baptism. It says, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Um, that is what someone in the wilderness would need to eat, and it is food that is um, healthy for them. We go on to verse 7. What did he have to say? Mark 1, 
7 to 8. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What John does is he points to Jesus. He points out Jesus. He shows his own humility. He is even lower than the lowest slave. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. And then in verse 8, there's this amazing contrast between I and he. I, John the Baptist, baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There is a tremendous difference between this announcement and any announcement of any other Savior, of any other Messiah. John recognizes that all he can do is he can splash water people on the outside of their body. But Jesus Christ, this Savior, he will come with the Holy Spirit where he can indwell the believers and empower the believers through God himself and the Holy Spirit. A Messiah, the one and only true Messiah. A Messiah, the one and only true Messiah. Can we believe that? Can we believe this outlandish promise? We've been trained by our parents, we've been trained by our teachers, we've been trained by our society to be cynical. Don't believe that. Don't, don't rush off and follow that ideology. Don't rush off and follow that leader. We've been told that over and over again and throughout history every time someone has risen up like Chairman Mao, it has turned into a failure. Did we really expect that 50 years after the Cultural Revolution, did anybody really expect that China would be a utopian society? Even if one faction of Red Guards had won, or even if the Red Guards had been unified and they'd achieved their goals, can we really believe that 50 years later, China would be a utopia if only they had succeeded? We are taught over and over again, don't be, don't be duped, don't be deceived by this kind of of message. What we learn throughout history is that no matter what the utopian movement, no matter who the Messiah or the Savior is or the messenger or the prophet of the movement, what we find out is that oppression remains. We find out that the poor are still downtrodden and we found out, find out that hatred and prejudice, hatred and prejudice are still at home in our communities. We are constantly disappointed. But Mark wants us to consider a new message, a new Messiah. And he wants us to taste and see that the Lord is good. My daughter, five years ago, set off to college in Santa Barbara. You 
University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB. And one of the, her favorite things that she discovered in uh, Santa Barbara was McConnell's ice cream. And when she tried it, she told mom and dad, she told her family, this is the best ice cream in the world. It is the most scrumptious ice cream ever. Do you believe that? I ask you. If you haven't tried it, I suggest you do because she, of course, did take us to McConnell's Ice Cream where there are some crazy, wonderful things there. Pistachio, amaretto, salted caramel chip, wild berry chip. I won't dare read these except the sermon's almost over, so I think it's okay. Double peanut butter chip, toasted coconut almond chip. It's not enough just to hear it. Maybe we look at these pictures. Is this the best ice cream in the world? The way to know is to dig in and to try it. And, when, and as we now turn to the book of Mark, and Mark says, this is a Messiah. This is the unique Messiah, the Son of God, what he asks us to do is sit and listen as he tells us what he learned from Peter, the eyewitness of Jesus Christ, the eyewitness of the life and teaching and death and resurrection. Mark invites us to pull up and listen to the gospel to taste and see that the Lord is good, that there is a true Messiah that truly changes the world, not 50 years later, but 2,000 years later. He continues to transform the world. And the future is a future of being forever together as the family of God, the people of God, together with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Lord, we are taught to be cynical. We are taught to doubt. And Lord, I do pray that we would all doubt, but I also pray that we would be willing to taste, that we would be willing to try. We would be willing to look. We would be willing to listen to Mark as he makes his case throughout the gospel of Mark. And Lord, I pray that as we taste and see Jesus, we will recognize that he is real. Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would thus indwell us when we receive Christ. Your spirit would indwell us and empower us to be different people. People of power, people of peace, people of love, people of joy, people of hope. Lord, we thank you for this message. We thank you for what Mark has written in the Gospel of Mark. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.